Amen, amen. Have a seat if you can. Have a seat. Well, good morning. We're glad you're here this morning. I don't know about you, but uh, oftentimes at the end of the day, when you make it home after work or after watching kids and the kids are down, I don't know how you unwind. Some people unwind by maybe reading a book. That's not me. Some people unwind maybe by taking a walk. Obviously, you can look at me and say, that's not Doug. The way I unwind is I like to watch TV. I do. I like to find myself mindlessly involved in something that has nothing to do with my life and to get caught up in somebody else's mess. Anybody else like that? Anybody else? Okay, there's a few holy people here. Okay, so I, I like to watch TV. Now, one of the shows, I, well, kind of the, 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 the type of show that I love watching that I get really caught up in is shows that have, it's like a lawyer show, right? It's, it's in, in fact, the show that I remember the most watching way back when was a show called The Practice. You may remember that or not. It was a long time ago. And so I remember the show, and I love that show because it seems like when you watch one of those TV shows that, every, that there's a scenario that comes up, and it's the most bizarre scenario in the world, and you're wondering how on the earth is this scenario going to flesh itself out? And so it always ends up with it going to trial, right? Nobody ever settles. And so it always goes to trial, and you've got a defense attorney taking the evidence, and they're skewing it their way. And then you get the prosecuting attorney taking the evidence and skewing it their way. At the end of both of these arguments, they hand all the evidence and all the arguments over to who? The jury. And it's the jury that then has to make a decision. Innocent or guilty. And I love watching those shows because you can watch the whole 57 and a half minutes of an episode. But it comes down to like 15 seconds, right? And 15 seconds, that jury is going to announce the what? The verdict of how things are going to go. In fact, I remember, and some of you will remember this, maybe most of you, what is one of the biggest trials you ever remember seeing on television? O.J. Simpson, yeah. I was my senior year in college, 1995, and I was sitting in a supervised ministry class and that day, our supervised ministry class, which supervised ministry was basically practical ministry stuff. How do you do things like weddings and funerals and counseling people? And, you know, at 18 years old, I don't think I should have been taught any of that stuff. But anyway, we're sitting in this class and our 21 years old. And so we're sitting in this class and the teacher says, we're going to go do something. Today. So we went and watched our television and we watched the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial. And, you know, you can imagine some were elated, some were filled with disbelief, some just like me just didn't care at the point. But the point was there was this high anticipation, these hours and hours and hours of this trial on TV come down to a simple verdict. Now, did that verdict change O.J. Simpson's life? Whichever way it went, yes. Did that verdict change the lives of the jurors who probably spent decades now being talked to and interviewed as why they came? Sure it did. Now, the reason I come up with all that is because of this. As we've trafficked through the gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus do a lot of stuff. And now it's kind of the season of Jesus' life. We're toward the end of his life. We're in the last part of the Passion Week of Christ. In fact, in early December, we're going to begin looking at the last hours of his life. From the moment of the arrest to the moment of the crucifixion and eventually into the resurrection. So we're in the very last stages of Jesus' life and his ministry. And so you think about this way, as we come to chapter 26 today, what we're going to find out is there's a point where all these people that we're going to be introduced to, all these people have heard the teachings of Jesus, they've seen the miracles that Jesus performed, and it's time for them to ultimately make a decision, to demand a verdict. Here's what we say about Jesus. 
Now, Peter already had this experience, didn't he? Matthew chapter 16. Remember when Jesus says, who do the world say that I am? And they said, yeah, we think you're this and that. And then, but Jesus turns it to them and to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And, Jesus, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember that? And so Peter's already had that moment. But some people we're going to come across today have that moment now. It's a moment where they're going to have to lay out a verdict of who they say and who they think that Jesus is. So let me ask you this question before we get into it. What is your verdict? When you think about all that you've heard about Jesus, all that you've read about Jesus, what is your verdict? Now, I know some of you immediately, here's what you're going to say. Immediately, some of you are going to say, well, Doug, my verdict is, like for me, I was nine years old and I surrendered my life to Christ. That was my verdict. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I needed a savior and I surrendered my life to Christ. And many of you say, that is your verdict. Amen? You've come to that conclusion. Amen? Not, not convinced that. How many made that decision? Amen? Amen. So that's your verdict. But for those of you who say that you're believers, I'm going to ask you to dig a little deeper. I'm just asking if you accepted Christ. What I'm asking is this. If you made the verdict that Jesus is your Savior, is that reflected in how you live your life? Is that reflected in how you make decisions? Is that reflected in how you deal with your finances? Is that reflected in how you deal with your marriage? Is that reflected in how you are an employee or an employer? Does that affect how you parent your kids? Does that affect how you treat your neighbors? I mean, you can say all day long that I belong to Christ, but we also know in Matthew chapter 17, there's a passage where people said, hey, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? And Jesus says, cast away from me forever, for I never knew you. So what I'm asking is, I know you maybe made an outward verdict that Jesus is your Savior, but what I'm asking is, has he changed your heart? Has he really changed your life? Because here's what I believe. Those who not only say that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of their life, but they live like he's the Lord and Savior, those people live with urgency. Those people live with boldness. And the people that just kind of say, yeah, he's my Savior, but that's about as far as it goes, those people live lives with zero conviction and lives of total self-centeredness. So the question's a little deeper than just the surface of what is your verdict. That some of you here today, when I ask you what your verdict is, some of you would just be honest enough to say, I don't know. I've heard the stories of Jesus. I read the Bible, but you know what? Let's be honest. I mean, if you, Doug, if you want to be honest here, I mean, this is kind of a bizarre story. Here's a guy who dies for the world who does that stuff. And then he takes the Lord's Supper and says, here's my body broken for you. Eat it. I mean, that's, that's like gross. I mean, who does that stuff? And so some of you, honestly, this is to be honest. You're at that point where you're like, I don't know. And my prayer is before the day is over today, you have made a verdict of who you think Jesus is. Now, what I want to do today is I want to look at three groups of people. Three, actually, three people in particular. And look at their verdict. And here's the question I want us all to ask ourselves. Here's the tension of today's. Which one of these three am I? Now, on the, on the very front end, as I go through these, you're going to say, that's definitely not me. Because we're going to talk about Judas today. And you're going to go, Doug, I am so not a Judas. But by the time we're done today, you're probably going to go, Doug, I am so a Judas sometimes. And so I want you to look at these and go, which one of these three are me? So if you're ready, say, I'm ready. Here we go. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5 is the first verdict we see. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 25, it says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. Now, these sayings are these teachings after Jesus just spent two chapters talking about the end times, right? He's talked about what's going to come down the pike and all this stuff. And then he says, listen, after all these teachings, I don't want you guys to lose sight of something. Here it is. In two days, Passover's coming. 
And in two days, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up and crucified. And then look what happens in the very next verse. This is the first group we're going to look at. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and what? Well, come on. Are you all awake this morning? So I'm awake. Come on, you got to get awake this morning. All right, here we go. Let's read that again. And they ordered to go to Jesus by stealth and to what? Kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, the first, the first verdict we see is made by the religious leaders. And it's this verdict, that Jesus is a threat to our way of life. That Jesus is a threat to our way of life. Now, let's just kind of unpack the story for a minute. There's a secret meeting that's going on in the house of Caiaphas. And you've got three kinds, you've got two kinds of people and the Caiaphas. You've got the chief priests that are there. We say, well, Doug, who are the chief priests? Well, let me tell you. They are the wealthy and the influential and the religious laity. They're kind of, they're kind of they're the religious people. They're kind of the, 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 the who's who of the religious leaders. They are wealthy, they are influential, and they're the people that you go talk to that make decisions and make things happen. So you've got chief priests that are there. And then he says there's elders that are there. Well, who's the elders? Well, these are the wealthy people and the influential people who are not religious people. They're the people that are the community leaders. These are the people that go out, and when they speak, everybody listens. Kind of like E.F. Hutton. Remember that one? I mean, when they talk, everybody listens. I mean, they are wealthy, they're influential, but they're not part of the religious sect, so to speak. And then you have this guy named Caiaphas, who's the high priest. And they all come in in the secret meeting. Now, Caiaphas, just real quick, let me tell you a little bit about Caiaphas. He was the high priest, but if you read scripture and you were to read Jewish historians, here's what they would say about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was known for being deceptive and conniving. And we know that's true about Caiaphas. Do you remember a few weeks back when we talked about the cleansing of the temple? And we said that one of the problems was when Jesus is overturning tables, it wasn't because they were selling things in the temple. That was customary. Here was the problem, one of the many problems. Here was one of them, that when people would bring their offering to be sacrificed, whether it was a dove, whether it was a bull, depending on their wealth, when they brought something to be offered, guess who got to decide if it was worthy to be offered? The priests did. And so the priest will then go, wink, wink, this is not worth sacrificing. You've got to go buy it from one of our vendors in the temple. And then the people that were selling the stuff in the temple would overcharge for the item that was being bought, and then they would give a kickback to the high priest. It was a scam that was going on in the temple, and Jesus was exposing it. Guess who got more wealthy than anybody else out of this? Caiaphas, the high priest. He got more wealth than anybody because he got to make the final decisions on the big sacrifices. And if they wouldn't work, he would send them to the vendors and they would give him some kickback. So Caiaphas was conniving and he was deceitful. But here's the thing about Caiaphas we learned in this passage. Caiaphas wanted to destroy Jesus. Now, I want you to follow me for a moment because this is important. He wanted to destroy Jesus because Jesus was a threat to Caiaphas. Well, Doug, how was he a threat? Let me tell you two ways. Number one, he was a threat to Caiaphas's position. And secondly, he was a threat to Caiaphas's power. Let me explain. Caiaphas was at the upper echelon. He was the man of Judaism. One time a year, 
the high priest and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for all of Israel. Guess who that person was? It was Caiaphas. Who was the premier, primary, dominant figure in the Jewish system? Who was at the top of the game and nobody higher than him except God? It was Caiaphas. And so if people start believing Jesus, if people start buying into what Jesus is teaching, and if people get to that place where they're like, what Jesus is teaching is more important than what Judaism is teaching, it threatens Caiaphas's position. Because if he starts losing people and they start going to Jesus, guess what else he loses? Power. See, Caiaphas had all kinds of power. When Caiaphas said it, people did it. Why? Because Caiaphas represented himself as when I speak, it's as if it comes from the mouth of who? God. So when I speak, you better listen because it's as if I am speaking the words of the Almighty. So Caiaphas was ready to destroy Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to take over his position of importance, and therefore he was a threat to take over his power. See, when you think about Caiaphas, here's what I want you to think about. He was driven by greed and selfishness. There's nothing about Caiaphas that was about righteousness and doing the right thing. There was nothing about Caiaphas that was about justice. Caiaphas was loaded with greed and selfishness. All Caiaphas cared about was self-preservation, taking care of me. So that's who Caiaphas is. Are you with me on that one? So then there's this private meeting that goes on, and they're meeting in Caiaphas' house. And it says they met together, and they had one goal, one purpose. And here was the purpose. We are planning the chief priest. Now, think about this. These are the religious people of the day. These are people that taught the scrolls. These are people that would say, thus saith the Lord. And then you've got people in the community that should have been believers. They were heavy than Judaism. They just weren't religious leaders. And so they also believed in the teachings. They also believed in the scrolls. And then you've got the man. I mean, you've got like the premier guy who is the high priest over everything. And he's a thus saith the Lord guy. And these guys get together and they have one purpose. And that's to kill Jesus. Now, how godly is that? Are you with me on that? Think about that. Here's a people that are supposed to represent the presence of God and the voice of God in this world, and they're ready to take out the Son of God. They meet together with one purpose. We've got to kill Jesus. Now, if you think about it, sometimes I look at this and go, well, you know, I can't believe they would have come to that conclusion, but think about it for a moment. They were tired of Jesus exposing and calling them out, wasn't it? I mean, every time you turn a page in the gospel, isn't Jesus calling out a Pharisee? Isn't Jesus exposing the hypocrisy of how they lived? I mean, every time you turn the page, Jesus is calling them out. He's calling them out either about the hypocrisy of how they live or the ungodliness with how they live. And if you really think about it, Jesus even begins to call them out on, you know, you keep talking about performance-based to be accepted with God. That's religion, and that's not right. It's about being accepted through God through faith. And they didn't like it. So Jesus was a threat to them. So we got to take him out. And I love what they say here. And you, you don't read scripture much. You may miss this. It says, they plotted together to arrest Jesus by what? Stealth, right? I mean, they're like going to go like secret operatives are going to go in and they're going to try to arrest Jesus. And they says they didn't want to do it at nighttime. Or, I mean, during the feast, because they didn't want to create an uproar. Here's the verdict that the religious leaders came to. Listen to this. And you might want to write this down. Here's their verdict. You ready? Jesus is a threat 
to our way of life, and he must be dealt with. He's a threat. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that's probably going to be a bit offensive at the moment, but let me explain before you throw something, all right? Is Jesus a threat to your way of life? No, 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 Doug. I love Jesus. No, no, come on. Think about it. Listen to my question. Is Jesus a threat to your way of life? See, here's what I believe about Doug, and if it's true about me, I'm hoping, and probably it's true about many of you in the room. Sometimes I know, here's what I know. I know there's only room for one on the throne of Doug's life. And sometimes Doug really wants to be on that throne. And I know that if I really follow Jesus like I'm supposed to follow Jesus, he's the only one that sits on the throne of my life. That means only to have the position in my life, but he also has power in my life. And so if he says it, I do it. If he tells me I need to walk this way, I'm walking that way. It's like Abraham. When he says, Abraham, I want you to grab your stuff and I want you to go. And how do you going to know when you get there? I'll let you know. I need to, if, I, if I truly follow Christ, that's how I'm going to live my life. But here's the battle in that, is that sometimes I want to be on the throne of my life, don't you? Some are like, I don't know, should I answer that? Well, think about it for a moment. We do. We all battle selfishness. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, when you said yes to Christ, here's what we know. Salvation is a free gift of God, amen? Okay, we're not all convinced today. You're kind of wearing me out. Here we go, come on. Salvation is a free gift of God, amen? amen. But here's the thing, it still costs you everything right? It's free, but everything is required, right? And so here's the thing. If that's true, then Jesus wants control of your life. But many of us find ourselves battling control. We want control. We want to make our decisions. We want to make them our way and do it our way and have our plan instead of going, you know what? There's only room for one on the throne of my life, and it's going to be Jesus. And that means he has ultimate power and authority in how I live my life, how I deal with my daily affairs, and how I walk. I mean, he has control over my life. And if you were really honest today, many of us in the room would say, I wrestle with that. Because I like my way, because it's my way. I like doing it the way I want to do it, because it's the way I want to do it. And so he wants control over life when we battle. And then I think of it this way. Sometimes we look at God's word and go, okay, he's got a standard for how we should live our lives. And this standard's really good when it benefits us, isn't it? But when you start talking about loving your enemies, I don't like that one, do you? When it starts talking about forgiving people, and you think about it, when you talk about forgiving people, on the other end, if you've not, if you're not in, if you don't have a dog in the fight, we're always gonna talk, oh yeah, you gotta forgive people. You gotta forgive. That's what Jesus would do. And we quote this passage, because I quote it too, that if you don't forgive others, your heavenly father won't forgive you. But when you're in the heart of the battle, is that easy to do? Because we're like, oh listen, Lord, you don't know what they did to me. Well, yes, he did actually. He does know what they've done to you. But Lord, I, I hear what you're saying here, and, and Lord, I, I'm going to love them, but I just refuse to like them. Well, that's just stupid, right? But we think that way all the time. See, here's the thing. This book has a standard for how we live our lives, but many times we want it our way. In fact, let me quote a famous theologian named Bon Jovi, all right? I know that would get you away. He said this. He wrote a song. It's my life. It's now or never because we're not going to live forever. Now, what is the essence of the song? It's my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to live how I want to live because I've got YOLO. I've got one life, and you only live once, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And many of you, if you thought about it, that's how we live our lives. We are wrestling with the throne of our life. We know Jesus needs to sit there, but we really want to take a seat with him. And maybe it's the control issue. Maybe it's the standard, or maybe it's this. Maybe it's because of commitment. See, when you said that you would follow Jesus, here's what Jesus required of you. You ready? Total 
100% commitment. That's what he required. Well, Doug, I'm not sure about that. Well, let me just give you a story. You ready? Luke chapter 9. You can read it later. Three people came up to Jesus. The first one came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. And he said, great. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Meaning, if you're going to follow me, it is going to be so uncomfortable. Are you in? And we never hear from that guy again. And right after that, another guy comes up to Jesus and said, hey, I want to follow you wherever you go, but first let me go collect my inheritance. Let me wait till my dad dies. Let me collect my inheritance, and then I'll come follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. See, following me is not about waiting. It's about right now. And then the third guy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, guess what? I want to follow you wherever you go, but let me first go tell my family goodbye. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow is fit for the kingdom of God. Meaning, if you're going to follow me, it requires right now total commitment of your life. Are you in? And in all three stories, we never hear of those guys again. Why? <clears throat> because we all wrestle with what it means to be totally committed to the Lord. Can I, can I just be super honest with you this morning? That's why sometimes we wrestle with being in attendance on a Sunday morning worship service. Because maybe we're not totally committed. Maybe that's why we wrestle with how we deal with our finances, how to steward the way God wants, because maybe we're not totally committed. Maybe that's why we wrestle with reading our Bible and praying. Maybe that's why we wrestle with not getting in a small group, even though we know we've been built for community. Maybe it's because we are not totally committed. And I'm asking you, are you like these religious leaders? And maybe Jesus is a threat to your life. Maybe he wants control that you don't want to relinquish. Maybe he's asking you to live by standards that you're not sure you want to live by. Maybe he's asking for total commitment that you're not sure you're up for. And so is it possible that maybe Jesus is a threat to your way of life, just like these religious leaders? Let me show you the second threat, <coughs> the second verdict. <coughs> it's this. Look with me in verse 6 through 13. And this is really the second verdict that we see. And it's total different from the first one. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head and reclined at the table. And when the disciples, uh, as a reclined table, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, "Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor." But Jesus, aware of, of this, said to them, "Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you always will not have me." And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed and the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now let me tell you the second verse we see. The first one was that Jesus is a threat to our way of life. Here's the second one. That Jesus is worthy of everything. So you've got the religious leaders who go, oh, Jesus, he's a threat to the way I live life. We've got to deal with him. And then you've got a lady who comes along. And by the way, in case you don't know this, men, so often in the Gospels, the women are the heroes of the story. I mean, their faith is extraordinary so often. And here's a lady that comes up to Jesus and basically is saying, Jesus is worthy of everything that I have. Now, I find it interesting. We've gone from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, the religious guy, to the home of a sinner, Simon the leper, right? And we've gone from one extreme to the next extreme. So we're in the home of Simon the leper. Now, what we know about Simon the leper, according to John's gospel, is that this is where Mary and Martha, who are sisters, and their brother Lazarus live. All three of them live in the home of Simon the leper. 
And Jesus having dinner, listen, Jesus having dinner in a place that's been defined by disease. And that's where Jesus is hanging out. And the middle of this meal, this woman, Mary, who was, you know, out of Mary and Martha, it was Mary. Mary comes to Jesus and she takes this perfume and she anoints Jesus with all of it. Now, if you think about it, that was a custom to do during that day. If you had an honored guest in your house, you would take perfume and you would douse it on them. But she didn't just douse it. I mean, she pours it all out on him. I mean, she gives everything she has to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is worthy of everything. And this perfume, if you were to put it in a kind of a financial sense, this perfume would have been worth 300 denarii, which would have been one year's worth of wages. How many of you, first of all, would spend one year's worth of wages on perfume? Any men in the room takers on that one? For your wife, you wouldn't do that? Anyway, that's a lot of money, right? Nobody's doing that. Nobody's spending that kind of money. But here's what most scholars would say, that probably Mary inherited this and something she had her entire life. It wasn't something she spent money on. She had it in her entire life. And here she is, and she gives it all to Jesus. Let me tell you Mary's verdict. You ready? Mary's verdict was this, that Jesus is worthy of everything. That just follow, it's not just about just following Jesus. It's about surrendering everything I have to him. When you read the story, let me say this. Mary wasn't trying to gain favor with Jesus. It's not why she did it. What Mary did is a response to the truth of what she knew about Jesus. Well, Doug, what did Mary know about Jesus? Well, let me tell you a couple things. You remember when Jesus showed up at their house and Martha's in the kitchen cooking and Mary decides to sit at the feet of Jesus to listen to his teachings and Martha comes in there. She's distraught. She's like, Jesus, tell Mary to come help me in the kitchen. And he's like, Martha, Martha. Who's doing the right thing here? You by preparing a meal, which is great, or her by listening to what the Savior has to say? It's her, Mary. She's listening to the teachings of Jesus, but also she was there that day when Lazarus was put into a tomb. And she was there four days later when there was no sign of Jesus. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Mary was there when Lazarus came out of the grave. So the truth what Mary knew about Jesus was this, is that Jesus was God. And so what she does here is a response to the truth that she knows who he is. For example, you're going to hear Elijah in a few moments, and he's going to talk about the offering. And he's going to say, this is part of how we continue in worship. And some of you don't think of it that way. But when we give our offering and our tithes and we put it into that basket as past, is that a response to the truth of who we know Jesus is? It is. Listen, it is an act of worship when we do that. And this lady here, Mary, what she did was an act of worship. By pouring this on Jesus, she was ascribing worth to him. She was saying, Jesus, you are worth everything I have. Everything I have and everything I am is because of you and it belongs to you. That was her verdict. My question is, what about you? What about me? What about us? Is that our verdict? When we think about what Jesus has done for us, what wells up in your heart? Is it gratitude? Is it adoration? Is it worship? Is that what wells up? I mean, when you look at your life, do you go, okay, Lord, as I think about things and I think about you, Lord, here's the conclusion I'm coming to, that no matter what comes my way, that you are not only worthy of following, you are worthy of everything in my life, that everything I have and everything I am, it belongs to you. Have you made the same verdict in your life that she has? Let me give you one more verdict as we close. It's found in verse 14 through 16. The first one was, Jesus is a threat 
to their way of life. Second one is Jesus is worthy of everything. And then look at the verse 14 through 15. The one of the, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him? Talking about Jesus over to you. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let me give you the third verdict. And it's this, that Jesus is someone to betray. That's the third verdict. That Jesus is somebody worth betraying. Now think about this. Judas is one of the 12. He's walked with Jesus. He's talked with Jesus. He's seen the miracles with Jesus. He's gone into the heated moments and the celebrated moments. Everywhere Jesus has been, Judas has been right there with him. Yet Judas is a hypocrite. Judas talks about maybe following and loving the Lord, but the truth of the matter is his life was reflected in his betrayal of the Lord. When you say the name Judas, what's the first thing you think of? Betrayal. Benedict Arnold, right? Traitor. He betrayed Jesus. And here's the thing about Judas. His response, I mean, his response to Jesus wasn't a loving act of worship. It was a heart that betrayed him. And see, for Judas, the question wasn't, when will I betray Jesus or if I will betray Jesus? Here was Judas' question is, how much am I going to profit from betraying Jesus? So here is Judas' verdict. You ready? Write this down. Here is the verdict that Judas came to. I choose me over Jesus. I choose me. I choose my finances. I choose my wealth. I choose my way of living. I choose me over Jesus. And here's the question for us. Have we come to the same verdict that Judas came to? We talk about being devoted to the Lord, loving the Lord, and wanting to live for the Lord. But the truth of the matter is when you look at your life, what you find out is that you are 100% living for yourself. And if that's the case, you've come to the same verdict that Judas came to, and that's that you choose you over choosing Jesus. So here's a question, all right? Everybody look right here. Are you ready? Which one of these three do you resonate with? Is Judas a threat to your life? Because he wants control, he's got standards, he wants total commitment, and you're just not sure if you're in. Is he a threat to your life? Do you find yourself choosing you in every area of your life over him and living for him? Or have you come to the verdict that everything you have belongs to him? And that he is worthy of everything. My finances, my relationships, my marriage, my parenting, my job. Everything that is mine belongs to him, is because of him, and I give it to him. Have you come to that verdict? Here's my prayer today. For some of you in the room today, maybe you've never trusted Christ. You've never made a decision for Jesus. And I just want you to hear me this morning. All that can change. You can change that verdict with just a simple prayer. Because the more we read the Gospels, here's the more I want you to understand, is that he loved you so much that he went to the most painful path he could go to to show us the magnitude of his love for us. The crucifixion was the most brutal death in the Roman Empire. There was no death any more brutal than crucifixion, and Jesus died on the cross for us. Why? Because he loves us. And if you would just acknowledge today that, hey, I know that I'm a sinner and I don't have this whole Christianity thing figured out, but if that man's willing to die for me, I want him to be the one sitting on the throne of my life. I want him in control of my life so that one day 
I will get to spend eternity with him in heaven. If you've never made that decision, would you just pray that out? Say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and ask you to forgive me my sins. And I want Jesus to be the boss, the master, and the one sitting on the throne in my life. And if you'll do that, the Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be what? Saved. Then I have a couple of prayers for those of us that are believers. For those of us that are believers in room today, maybe you look at it and you know what? Jesus is a threat. What Jesus requires of me, asking me, is a threat to the way that I choose to live life. And here's what I'm going to ask you today. I'm going to ask you to join me at this altar. If you feel led or you can do it at your seat, but just take a moment and say, Lord, I'm tired of doing things my way. Because here's what we all find out. You ready? Here's what we all find out. When we do life our way, man, we can sure make it a mess, can't we? When we do life our way, we seem to screw things up really, really good. And there's no way we're going to unscrew things up. And so maybe today, if you feel like he's been a threat because he wants control and he wants these standards and he wants total commitment, today would you just join me at this altar and say, Lord, I hand over control of my life today. I want you to be the one on the throne of my life. I want to remove myself. I relinquish control of my life and I ask you to take it back. I'm recommitting myself to you today. If that's your day, would you make that decision? Or maybe you're here today and you just be honest and say, you know what? I spend so much of my life choosing me over Jesus today. I need to ask him to put my eyes back on him. Everything I do, how I live my life, Lord, my life is not about me. It's about you. Maybe you need to make that commitment today. But if you're a believer and you find yourself wrestling with one of these struggles, would you confess it today? Would you repent of it and ask the Lord to do work in your life? Everybody, if you would, stand with me if you would. Everybody stand with me. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads and we're going to pray. Everybody stand. In just a moment, as I say amen, this altar's open if you need to come. If you need prayer this morning, maybe you got some junk on your life. I'm going to ask Don and Terry if they'll be over to the side here if you want to pray with them. And Randy, if you guys want to come over here, somebody needs to pray for you. If you just need somebody to pray for you, you just need prayer. We're here for you. Every head bowed and every closed. Let's just pray. God, I love you. I thank you for today. And Lord, I, I pray that we understand this, that we can say we've made a verdict with our mouth, but the true verdict is reflected in how we live our life. And I just pray, first of all, for some people here today that have never trusted you as Savior, may they today make that verdict. Today, may they say, I have decided in my heart that Jesus is the Lord of my life, and I want to surrender my life to him. And Lord, if they do that, I pray that they would let us know. They'd fill out that card, that welcome card, or they would come down front and say, Doug, I, I gave my life to Christ. Lord, may they make that decision. But I pray for believers today too. Because there's some of us, if we were super honest, would say, Jesus, you are a threat to the way I like to live my life. But today I relinquish control back to you. Today I step off the throne of my own life. And I want you there. Because I've really messed this thing up. Or God, I pray for believers that they would have that heart to say, Lord, I spend most of my days choosing me over you and I don't want that to be that way anymore. I want to be your salt and light. I want when people see me, they see the work of Jesus through me. I choose you, Lord. God, I pray for believers today, Lord, to recognize where we are and to repent and to have the heart of Mary who responds with worship. God, we love you. We give this time to you. And may we be faithful to respond. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. Amen and amen. Listen, the altar's, if you want to come, the altar's open. It's always open. You can just come and say, Lord, I relinquish control.
Oh, Lord, I'm committed to make you the most important thing in my life and no more about me, but about you. And you need to respond with an act of worship and laying it down at the altar. This altar is open, or you can do it right where you're seated. But my prayer is this, that every one of us would respond as the Lord is leading us right now. Which one of these three do you resonate with? And are you content with staying there, or does there need to be a change that happens in your heart today? And if there's a change, would you be faithful to respond to it? And Lord, bless this time. May you respond as the Lord leads us.